Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Well, humans emerged from our evolutionary ancestors in Africa about 300,000 years ago. 130,000 years ago, the first small groups of humans began to migrate north out of Africa, and they spread all over the globe, living in small nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes. It wasn't until about 10 or 12,000 years ago, in what's now known as the Neolithic Age, that some of these groups of humans formed the first proto-urban agricultural settlements. In other words, they settled down in a single location and began to farm. Anthropologists generally agree upon six cradles of civilization formed in the Neolithic. Civilizations in Peru, Mexico, China, India, Egypt, and Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq and Iran. 5,000 years ago, we find evidence of the first major urban cities, civilizations with tens of thousands of people living together in one place. And the first four urban centers were Uruk, Ur, Kish, and Eridu, all in Mesopotamia, which is the precise setting of our story in Genesis 11 this morning. At that time, the global human population was estimated at 4 million people. Fast forward to November of last year, when our global human population surpassed 8 billion for the first time. Today, the largest city in the world is Tokyo, with nearly 40 million people, roughly 10 times the size of the global population when cities were first formed. Around the globe, there are now more than 4,000 cities that have a population over 100,000 people, and we speak approximately 7,000 languages. So how did we go from six cradles of civilization to thousands of cities and languages around the globe? Well, I think that's essentially the same question that the biblical author was trying to answer in Genesis 11. So let's turn to that story in Genesis and begin with the interpretation of the story that you've probably been taught. The typical name for this story is the Tower of Babel, a name that predisposes us to its conventional interpretation, putting the tower at the center of the story. And that conventional interpretation goes something like this. The people wanted to build a tower to reach heaven and to become like God, but God saw what they were doing and punished them for their pride and their arrogance by mixing up their languages and scattering them all over the earth. Does that sound familiar? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Something like that, right? Okay, you know what I'm going to do now, right? You know me well enough. I'm going to poke a lot of holes in that interpretation of the story. Unless you think that I'm going rogue and trying to buck centuries of biblical interpretation like some sort of 21st century Presbyterian maverick, (laughs) 
Why is that funny? (laughs) (laughs) These are not my observations and ideas. I credit them to a medieval Jewish scholar named Abraham Ibn Ezra and to one of my contemporary mentors and seminary professors, Reverend Dr. Ted Hebert, who studied this story extensively. In fact, Ted translated the words that we read this morning from Genesis for the Common English Bible translation. So let's approach this ancient story with new eyes and ears, probing the people's intentions and God's response. And first, let me ask, what are the people in Babel really doing? Verse 4, come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. Now, the conventional interpretation says that they're trying to build a tower to do what? To reach heaven. Yeah, you can respond. It's okay. They're trying to build a tower to reach heaven or or maybe to become like God, some variation of that. But it's right there in the text. Did you hear it? That's not what they're building the tower for. They say, let's build it so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. In other words, they're building the tower so that they can stay together as one people with one language in one place. Now, it says uh, that it's a tower with its top in the sky. And that may sound like they're trying to reach heaven, but really it turns out to be just an ancient idiom, a common idiom in ancient Hebrew that is more or less their phrase for skyscraper. It has nothing to do with their intention to get to heaven and everything to do with just saying it was a really tall tower. And as for the phrase, let's make a name for ourselves, when we look at that phrase, how it's used in other places in Hebrew scripture, it's never used to imply arrogance or pride. Instead, it's used in a neutral or even a positive way to describe a people who are trying to create a culture that will endure into future generations. Now let's turn to God's response, asking, why does God mix up their languages and scatter the people? The story begins, all people on earth had one language and the same words. This isn't a story about a tower. It's a story about language. The Hebrew word for language appears five times in these nine verses. Tower appears just twice. Now again, the traditional interpretation is that the mixing up of people's languages is a punishment from God. But the story doesn't actually say anything about that. Curiously enough, the Hebrew words for punish, sin, pride, arrogance, None of them appear in this story. So then if this is not a punishment, then why does God mix up the languages? The most straightforward answer comes from God in verse 6, when God says, there is now one people and they all have one language. This is what they've begun to do. And now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. The people want to stay as one people, with one culture, and one language. And for me, the motive behind God's response is clear. 
And I argue along with Ibn Ezra and Heber that this story has nothing to do with pride and punishment, and it has everything to do with God's desire and intention for diversity among humankind. But I have sometimes wondered, why did God want diversity when it's so dang hard? When it creates so many opportunities for misunderstanding, marginalization, and malice. These days we talk a lot about diversity. D-E-I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And for me, all these topics fall under the broader umbrella of cultural competency. And let me define what I mean by that. Cultural competency is an awareness of our own cultural norms and values, the ability to recognize and appreciate others' cultural norms and values, and ultimately the capacity to bridge cultures, to adapt our own perspective and behavior in intercultural situations. I'd say that cultural competency, especially in a community like Cleveland Heights, is more important than ever. In our workplaces and our schools, in our places of worship and our neighborhoods, and even sometimes in our own families. And cultural competency is certainly also critical for our work of service and justice with our mission partners, which is why we held a cultural competency training last Sunday for our youth and adults who are going down to Batay 105 next month. Now, there are lots of trainings and tools out there to assess and develop cultural competence But the one I'm familiar with and that more and more Presbyteries are beginning to use is called the Intercultural Development Inventory, or IDI for short. The IDI helps us see our cultural competence on a five-phase continuum, moving from a monocultural mindset to an intercultural mindset. At the monocultural end of the spectrum, there is denial which is when we uh, demonstrate disinterest and avoidance of cultural difference. And for me, this describes the people in the story about Babel in Genesis, a people who have no interest in living in a community with cultural diversity. The three middle phases of the IDI are polarization, minimization, and acceptance. And I'd venture to say that most of us live in those three phases most of the time. In polarization, we get stuck in us, them, better, worse, binary ways of thinking, most often assuming explicitly or implicitly that our culture's way of doing something is better than another's, another culture's way. In minimization, we emphasize our commonality across cultures so much that we tend to ignore or minimize our differences and so fail to seek a deeper understanding of our difference. And in acceptance, we're able to recognize and appreciate cultural differences, but we fall shy of being able to adapt our own thinking and behavior to participate in a different culture. There's one final phase of the IDI, the fifth, the most intercultural mindset, and it's called adaptation. 
in adaptation, we become capable of shifting our perspective, of changing our behavior in culturally appropriate ways, culturally code-switching in authentic ways that bridge the gap between our culture and another. While it may be more natural for those who are raised in a bicultural household or a multicultural community to practice adaptation, none of us can fully live into this intercultural way of being all the time. And in my opinion, we cannot do adaptation on our own. We can only bridge culture when we are filled with something that lies beyond us which is why I believe that Pentecost is the perfect example of adaptation. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven like the howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were pious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and when they heard this sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their native languages. You see, this is God's intention for humanity. These kinds of spirit-filled moments, moments when we can bridge culture and language so that the presence of God can be seen and felt and, yes, even heard in one another, these moments aren't something that most of us experience every day. And that's part of what makes them so special. They are a glimpse of what God intends for creation, a preview of God's beloved community. About five months ago on Christmas morning, while most of you were sitting by the fireplace with friends or family opening gifts, I was down the hallway in our chapel, joined by the 25 people who dared to show up for Sunday worship on Christmas Day. Gordon was there in a full Santa suit. <laughs> we closed out worship that, that morning with a hymn sing, and people called out their favorite Christmas carols, and we'd sing a verse or two from each of them. And when I asked for one final song, someone called out Silent Night, and he said, can we sing the first verse twice, once in English and once in German? And someone else asked, can we sing it in Spanish too? Another person offered to sing it in Polish, another in Korean. We sang that first verse of Silent Night again and again, a different language each time. But truly, I tell you, I heard every last verse in my own language. Because Pentecost isn't just one day a year. Pentecost can happen any day, every day, even on Christmas. 
This I deliver to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.